Welcome to the DTB podcast for November 2014, volume 52, number 11. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm Caroline Blaine, clinical editor. Our editorial this time is on yellow cards and the fact that they're celebrating their golden anniversary. David, what is the history of the yellow cards and are they still a card? <laughs> Good question. Um, yellow cards as as we affectionately call them, were kind of born out of the thalidomide uh, disaster back back in the in the sixties, uh, when there was a major overhaul of uh, regulation of of manufacturing of medicines, and part of that process was introducing a, a system by which clinicians could report suspicions of adverse effects to medicines. And over the past fifty years, this has evolved into the scheme that we recognise today in which patients and carers can also report adverse effects that they've experienced from medicines. So what we draw attention to is, A, the celebration. This is a landmark for the yellow cards to celebrate 50 years. Worth pointing out that it is still something that we should be encouraging all clinicians, patients, users of medicines to be aware of, and there are various ways in which you can report uh, adverse effects. Um, but also some of the developments that might be coming, um, the projects that are underway to look at whether we can harness information from social media uh, and other sources of information to build on uh, adverse drug reaction reporting. But I think the fundamental question is, you know, can we do more to highlight the, the role of yellow cards, encourage people to report them? They are still in the back of the BNF at the moment, the yellow pages at the back of, of all copies of the BNF. Um, but most importantly, online at yellowcard.mhra.gov.uk when anyone can report an adverse reaction. So the first main article is about electronic cigarettes and whether they help with smoking cessation. I suppose electronic cigarettes are a type of nicotine replacement therapy. Do do they work to promote smoking cessation? Good question again. And I guess the issue that we're all struggling with at the moment is that the introduction of electronic cigarettes while not taking everyone by surprise, but the, the, the growth in their use and the availability of them and the frequency with which you see them being used has been quite impressive. And I think a lot of people are struggling with the question of whether they should or will replace traditional methods of uh, nicotine replacement therapy as a method or a more successful method of encouraging people to um, give up smoking. I think what we try and cover in this article are really two two main issues. One is what's the evidence for their use in smoking cessation? So how good is it? What is our knowledge? Um, and the second is what about the regulatory aspects in terms of how are these uh, products being regulated? What is the difference between a, a consumer product uh, and one that is licensed as a medicine? So we look at the limited ev- evidence uh, of their use in smoking cessation and really that there isn't an awful lot. You might expect that products which deliver nicotine um, will be as effective as other ways of delivering nicotine. So we have patches, gums, uh, inhalators, just as a means of delivery method for nicotine. And and would we expect uh, an e-cigarette to be very different in that in that respect? But at the moment, the evidence is really rather absent. There are only we we report on two trials. Very little to um, conclude from either that they, these are better or worse than, than other methods of, of smoking cessation. So we are in a bit of a, a dark place at the moment where we don't know 
whether these will will be effective means of of helping people to give up give up smoking. And what about the safety of them? Because obviously the whole thing is the tobacco, which is thought of as the dangerous element, is replaced. But is it replaced with something else? And again, I think this, this ties in with the regulation issue, that that if a manufacturer wishes to uh, market an, an e-cigarette as a, an aid to smoking cessation and make claims for, for that uh, purpose, then they will have to go down the medicines regulation route and submit an application to the medicines regulator. And the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency have set out uh, guidance on what they might expect to see from applications for uh, smoking cessation with electronic cigarettes and are actively encouraging companies to do so. And if they've been through that route, then there will be some assessment of safety, efficacy and quality. So a user of a licensed medicinal product would have... uh, the comfort of knowing that it has been through a regulatory process. On the other hand, if it is being sold as a consumer product, the European Union has introduced a tobacco product directive which will subject all e-cigarettes to uh, regulatory controls, not as stringent as those that you would expect for a licensed medicine, but there will be some control over their use. However, to answer your question, we don't actually know at the moment how safe these products are. Um, nor do we know whether there are long-term consequences from the inhalation of of vapour containing other components of the e-cigarette. Arguments for and against, some people say that, well, it must be safer than all the products you inhale when you're using tobacco. Um, But others saying, well, that may be true, but at the moment we just don't have that evidence to say that it will be safer. So I suspect we're some way off a definitive answer, but we thought it was helpful to give an overview of, of the evidence as it stands at the moment. And what about sort of the availability, the selling and advertising of these new e-cigarettes? And again, no easy answers. Um, to deal with advertising, there are, there are some new regulations that are appearing in November about advertising uh, in print and broadcast media, which will give guidance on the rules that, that are expected to be followed in terms of not making these glamorous products, not making reference to their health benefits unless they've got a medicinal product license. It'll be interesting to see what happens if these adverts start to appear, as we've not had uh, tobacco advertising for so many years, but suddenly to have uh, e-cigarette advertising uh, may be a bit of a culture shock. In terms of their sales, well, there's again, interest in whether these should be available, particularly from healthcare premises, should healthcare premises be selling these? Um, And we have a little discussion on whether it is appropriate for healthcare premises or healthcare professionals to sell or supply um, products other than those which have actually got a product license. So I guess watch this space to see what happens next. So the next article is on multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and a new drug, bedaquiline. Is this a completely new drug, David? Yes, and I guess it's an interesting time for the treatment of uh, multi-drug resistant TB and there have been a couple of new products introduced, uh, first for, I guess, many years. And what we thought would be useful to feature this month is a detailed critique of the evidence behind one of these products. And particularly what makes it interesting is that it's been licensed under the European Medicines Agency's process for granting conditional approval 
for drugs that either meet or have a meet an unmet need um, or a public health interest. And they're allowed to grant these licenses on the basis of less data than they would normally expect for a full license application. The consequence of, of this is that the drug is only licensed for an, on an annual basis, which has to be renewed, and the drug company has to do further studies to continue the license. But it is interesting to contrast this with our usual experience of drugs which have been through a much more rigorous uh, and full set of clinical trials with this particular drug, which is really based on only two or three fairly short-term phase two studies. And is there any indication, is this being licensed as a first-line treatment or...? No. The product license for bedaquiline is that it can be used as part of an appropriate combination regimen for pulmonary multidrug resistant TB in those patients, adults, where an effective treatment regime cannot otherwise be used either because of resistance or because person can't tolerate the existing drugs. So it'll be part of a, you know, that, that multi-drug resistant treatment regime where they're using four or five different drugs and bedaquiline will be part of that process. So we know there's very limited evidence for its efficacy. What, what about for any harms of it? Yes, very limited evidence of efficacy. As we said, two small trials done in, in very specific population groups in, in South Africa and based on surrogate endpoints, so we're only looking at culture conversion rates, not at ultimate cure rates in terms of the primary outcome, so limited evidence of that. And again, because of that, the evidence of harms is really drawn from that very small population, I think you know, a couple of hundred patients at most. And so what we're seeing is, yes, some traditional or familiar uh, adverse effects that you'd expect with most drugs, nausea, vomiting, headache, things like that, um, but also some concerns over uh, prolonging the QT interval and possible interactions with other other drugs that prolong the QT interval. So again, not a lot of evidence either way, um, and perhaps just one note of caution that in one of the trials there was a greater proportion of deaths associated with the use of the drug than in those who had placebo. Now, there was no causal relationship shown between the deaths and the drug but the numbers were quite interesting that there were there were significantly more deaths and it is one of the warnings that's highlighted in the product information for betaquiline. Um So for people that are thinking about possibly prescribing this is there any guidance out there to help them? At the moment the World Health Organization seem to be the people who've done the most work on this in, in assessing where it will sit. Obviously the as an international problem, uh, they're in the right place to, to, to issue guidance for the uh, wider population. In the UK, the numbers of patients are relatively small who, who might be eligible for, the, for this treatment. And at the moment, the uh, NHS in England is consulting on its place in therapy, and we have yet to see any guidance from Wales or, or Scotland. So I think the World Health Organisation are the, the main body who've produced any statement on its use at the moment. Just a couple of articles from Select. Um, the first one's about ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II receptor antagonists for hypertension. Are they and should they be interchangeable? Use of ACE inhibitors and angiotensin II receptor antagonists in their relative place in treatment of hypertension has been debated long and hard, particularly around uh, the relative 
efficacy and safety of, of both groups of drugs. Obviously, ACE inhibitors have been around a lot longer. Uh, evidence base is well established. We've got placebo-controlled trials of their effectiveness. Angiotensin II receptor antagonists not been around as long, less evidence, but all intents and purposes, and what, what this systematic review seems to suggest is that they, in terms of outcomes, uh, you know, serious outcomes which matter to patients in terms of mortality or cardiovascular events, you couldn't really show a difference between the two groups of, of drugs. So both appear to be effective. The more interesting debate is whether, by using an angiotensin II receptor antagonist, you end up with fewer harms. And of particular concern of, to most prescribers has been the incidence of cough with the use of ACE inhibitors. And debate has been raging about whether cough occurs in 1 in 10 patients, 1 in 5 patients, or whether we should actually give all patients an angiotensin II receptor antagonist uh, to avoid the, the development of any cough. And what was interesting out of this particular piece of work was that, yes, it did show that you got fewer withdrawals from study treatment in patients who were using an angiotensin II receptor antagonist. But the absolute difference between the two groups was, was relatively modest. And I think they worked out a number needed to treat to prevent one withdrawal of about 55. So you'd have to treat 55 patients with an angiotensin II receptor antagonist rather than an ACE inhibitor to prevent one withdrawal from, from therapy. So it would appear, yes, they have some advantage, but it's not an overwhelming advantage. And, and perhaps on the strength of the evidence, you know, it is reassuring that ACE inhibitors are still reasonable first-line choices. But if you need to use an angiotensin II receptor antagonist because a patient really can't tolerate an ACE, then that too is a reasonable, reasonable choice. It was interesting too, because most of the time we talk about the problems of having pure populations in studies. And, and this time it seems to be that actually most of the people have other risk factors such as um, stroke or myocardial infarctions, diabetes, and, and very p few studies seem to be in people with pure hypertension. Yes, and, and I guess that was the nature of this particular cohort of, of, of patients that they, they looked at, that they were um, in studies as a result of their conditions and complications of them, rather than just primary hypertension with no, uh, no consequences at this stage. Um, so yes, as ever, you're left with a certain amount of questioning of, of how transferable the information is to the standard population. And in conclusion, if um, somebody is sort of thinking of starting for the first time an ACE inhibitor or, or an angiotensin to um, antagonist, is there sort of any evidence to guide which one to be used first? Well, the advice from the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence is that, that either uh, are appropriate for the management of, of hypertension, particularly the low-cost, and they stress low-cost angiotensin II receptor antagonists, usually those that are, are off patent, or an, an ACE inhibitor, um, but they don't give a particular recommendation for a product. Another select article we have is on culture scenes, so some new evidence for a drug that's been around for quite a while, David. Yes, or a, a rehashing of the evidence of a drug that's been around for quite a while. Colchicine uh, seems to have been uh, part of our pharmacopoeia for, for centuries. And certainly I looked back and there was a DTB article that mentioned it from 1965. So it's, it's uh, got a long history. So you might expect there to be some reasonable evidence on it. But this uh, Cochrane Review tried to look at the, the evidence that exists for 
uh, its use in the treatment of acute gout. And they came up with two trials and a total of 124 participants. So very limited evidence on which to base any kind of prescribing decision. But what they looked at was the use of high-dose versus low-dose and tried to see whether there was any difference in outcomes or harms. High-dose and low-dose didn't really produce much difference in terms of benefit, so low-dose was as uh, beneficial as high-dose, but high-dose was much more harmful in terms of gastrointestinal effects, as you might expect. So given that low-dose didn't appear to differ markedly from placebo in terms of adverse effects, and didn't seem to differ in terms of outcomes in terms of high-dose, so the conclusion from this would appear to be that patients would be better off using as low a dose as possible to treat their acute gout, rather than risking higher doses and the associated adverse effects, um, because there clearly doesn't seem to be any benefit from going much higher in the dose. If you've got any comments or suggestions, please email dtbeditor at bmj.com. <laughs>